Hey guys, how's it going? So we're here with the amazing Michael Lick and George, who has, you know, befriended Mike. He's going to go with him tonight uh, to the gig, gig sponsor. And uh, we've been lucky enough to get Mike with us here today. And I'm going to basically draw all this good stuff that I can from your mind for all these bass players out here that have been bugging me forever to get you on, Mike. This is it. If I don't do it today, this is it. I'm going to be sort of like damned for the rest of my life. So, Mike, before we even get into, we're going to be talking about sort of like your bass playing and how you think about playing the bass and what you did in the past to, you know, get, get you the skills that you've got today on the bass. Mm -hmm. But before any of that, how did you actually get into the bass in the first place? How did you get into this game? Uh, I think probably in the way that a lot of bass players start, which is I was a guitar player and there were too many guitar players. And so someone said, you have to play bass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was like a punishment. And was it always, a, were you always going to be into music? Like, was it something that was in your family? Yeah, my, I mean, my mom majored in music. She didn't do it professionally. She taught kind of private lessons to, yeah. uh, to kids. Um, my grandfather was a high school band director for, I think, 30 years or something. Oh, right, okay. So when you turned around and said, I'm going to be a musician, the family didn't freak out? No, no. What but my, does this mean? But my dad is military, his dad is military, his dad is military, oh, right. and my brother and I are both musicians, so we were the first generation in four yeah. to kind of like not do the military thing. And were they cool about that, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think probably cooler than than had we joined but the it military. Could have been. Actually, yeah, 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 cooler yeah. than if you got yeah, to the yeah. military. I mean, my dad was the you know, and my mom were the ones that were playing us Hendrix records and CSN records yeah. when we were one year old. So, so when did you first start playing an instrument? Uh, I had like a three-week thing with drum set when I was in third grade, and then I had like a one-year thing with violin when I was in fourth grade. But the, I really got into playing guitar when I was like thirteen. Yeah. Uh, but just kind of acoustic guitar and playing. Yeah. songs and then my brother was playing jazz so he got me into that and then when I was 17 my, my senior year of high school we had three guitar players in the high school jazz band and no bass player yeah. and there was an old squire jazz bass rotting away in the uniform closet with yeah, all yeah. the marching band uniforms and the teacher said sorry you know <laughs> <laughs> sorry like, Which yeah, one? Yeah, you. <laughs> yeah you're a bassist now you know and I was like <sighs> you know but then I took it home that night, and the next day I was like, nah, I like this. I'm going to be a bass player. Yeah. And from what, like, because obviously you went to North, North Texas, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah. Like, how old were you when you, were you 18 when you mm -hmm. went there? Mm -hmm. So you were 17 when you first started playing the bass, 18. And when you went to North State, were you like, I'm a bass player? Were you fully fledged in that year? Had you fully converted? I was, ter no, I was terrible. I mean, I showed up because North Texas is a college, a very competitive music college, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, we should actually tell the guys about because they might have not even heard of North Texas, so... It's actually the yeah. first, it was the first university in the world to offer a jazz degree. Yeah. In the world, in 1947, yeah. it's very strange. Wow, in 47. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it's attracted, you know, it has a great reputation for attracting great musicians, you know, Matt Chamberlain, Ari Honig, uh, you know, loads of loads of session guys Greg Bissonette you know John Butt and all these really I mean the list is like crazy it's kind of like the poor man's Berkeley yeah, yeah because I mean I went to college for I think it was like five or six grand a year and Berkeley's like 50 or something yeah, like you know what I mean yeah way. so yeah. Uh, so a lot of the, a lot of young musicians that can't afford to go to Berkeley go there yeah um so it's cool it has a nice it has a nice vibe and I showed up and all the students were kicking my ass 
Yeah, was, what, I mean, what I was, was your skill level when you were there? Were you like zero. standards and stuff? I or? was like level zero. Yeah. I couldn't read. Um, and you were required to play upright bass. And I didn't play upright bass. So like I started really playing upright bass like a couple weeks before yeah. I went to college. So I went into the audition with the teacher who had been listening to all these badass 18-year-olds from all around the world, you know? Yeah. And like 15 seconds into the first song, he stopped me. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, how long have you been playing the bass? And I said, well, electric bass for about a year and upright bass for like two weeks. And and he said, okay, well, let's treat this like a practice audition. Like, we'll just accept that you're not going to get placed into any of the ensembles. And I'm going to just kind of, he was so helpful. But he also said, if you don't get your shit together within a year, I'm going to recommend that you switch majors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I was really, I was really freaked out. And what did you do? Like, with that information, when somebody says that to you, like, what did you, did you just, like, go back and, like, to, to the shed and practice like crazy? Or yeah. Like, what did you actually do? Yeah, I did, like, 10 hours a day for four years just practicing, you know. And actually, I hurt my arms because I was not really practicing in a healthy way. What, tendonitis? Like, yeah. Yeah, both like both my arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's good to get your ass kicked. And how long you until know? you felt like, all right, I'm I'm like I'm safe. <laughs> I can hold my own now. In in terms of, I don't feel like the underdog. Like, how long did that take? Maybe my third year. People that I really respected yeah. and wanted to play with, like that were older than me, or. Yeah. I you ask you the what? question because, like, obviously, like, there's a lot of people being in that situation where they are the underdog and they're like, oh, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, a yeah. lot of, um, you know, a lot of digging in to do. And it's really hard to conceptualize how long that's actually going to take for somebody. Like, is it six months? Is it a year? But obviously, in your case, you're like, you know, three years. Several oh, years, like hard, yeah. Hard work, yeah. Sure. And sometimes it can be a disadvantage coming in as the most talented kid. Because I remember there was a guy that came into our school and he was already playing great and was friends with all the heavy players. But I think he felt like he could just chill, you know? And then three years later, everyone had passed him. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. You know, so I think being the underdog, sometimes it's kind of a good scenario because you really have nothing to lose. You're already the worst. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially based on your personality. I think, like, your personality comes into it a lot. Some people Mm. would be, you know, they'd feel, well, they'd just feel beaten already, whereas some people would be like, you know, well, shit, I'm just going to dig in and make this happen. Yeah, but Which I th- obviously you did. I think also as a pra- practicing, when you're practicing, you encounter that same dynamic kind of m- like microcosmically, you know, like, because like if you're practicing and there's something you can't do, you have two choices. You can say, oh, I'm frustrated. I don't know how to do that or I can't do that. I'm going to work on something else. Or you can say, wow, this is an opportunity. Yeah. You know, yeah, when now when yeah, I practice, yeah. I get excited. I mean, we practice not to practice the things that we can do. We practice the things, yeah. practice to practice the things that we can't. Yeah. So if you can't do the thing, then you say, okay, I'm going to isolate this. I'm going to slow it down, blah, 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 blah. And you really go way in. And for me, that's kind of how I looked at my whole bass playing identity yeah. or my whole college career was yeah. like, okay, this is the thing that I don't know how to do yet. So let me like get in there and try to do it. And I had great teachers and great friends peers who helped me many of whom are in my band still and yeah. you know it was cool and it, like if you were to 80 20 with all the stuff that you did right so like 20 percent of the stuff that gave you 80 percent of the results what the what are the key things that you practiced that you think that you really got the most results from 
It could be, for instance, you learn the chord turns on the neck, or sure. you learn how to play standards, or you learn how to play walking bass lines. Or, I mean, like stuff like that. I mean, I think everything you learn, every single thing that has value, has a value beyond the value that you perceive. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so if you learn how to play um, My Girl, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. if you learn how to play it, exactly the way that it's played on the record. With a great tone, really nicely in the pocket, in time. You haven't just learned how to play My Girl, right? Yeah. You've learned how to play with a great tone, which you will then use for the rest of your life. You've learned how to play in time, which you will then use for the rest of your life. You've learned how to, you know, to learn a song, the idea of how to learn a song and not just learn my notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But understand when the guitar does this, then I, you know, when the lyric says this, I do this. I mean, you're learning so many things in every little bit. So I think really one of our main jobs as students and as learners of music is to understand how much value is in each little thing. That you, that you can work on. <laughs> that there's like an infinite amount of possibilities that are going to springboard out of that. Yeah, and sometimes we look at a musician who plays 20 instruments and we're like, how do they do it? Well... It's like a person who learns 20 languages after yeah. the, you know, the Cross second... germination, isn't it? Yeah. Right, yeah. After the second or third language, they've figured out a way to learn language, yeah. you know, and, and it's the same with us. So the more things you learn, the more, the more kind of spread you have in other musical realms, you know. So for me now, because I'm trying to learn some new instruments, you know, that are outside of stringed instruments as yeah. well, and, and I'm finding you know, that as I learn one thing, it just applies everywhere. Yeah, yeah, like, everywhere. as I learn this thing on a certain drum, I've improved that, uh, some other element of my, of my bass playing, you know. Yeah. It's really interesting how that works. I'm just trying to learn how to be a good student. Are you practicing on the bass anymore? Do you still do that? Not really. You practice on other instruments, yeah. Yeah, but I, but I mean, if I'm practicing a rhythm exercise on a hand drum, I'm strengthening my inner sense of time. Yeah. That doesn't go away once I pick up a bass, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. My sense of time becomes strengthened. And then when I play bass, my perspective on time is different. And tone and resonance, and it's important, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like saying, to, to contradict that would be like, you should only speak with, to people with English accents. <laughs> yeah, because if you speak yeah. with a person with an American accent, you're going to lose your English, you know? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. no, you're actually going to get a... Yeah a deeper sense of knowledge yeah. of the English If language. I learn to play drums, will my groove get better? Probably. Do you know what I mean? Like you're going to yeah, have a I better would. vibe with the, with the rhythmic side of playing and stuff like that. Here's a question for you. It, back in your, uh, your heyday as a student, were you ever going to be a shredder? Did you ever think of yourself? Because obviously when I think of you, <laughs> I think of a few certain things. P-bass, flat wounds, big fat tone. Not playing really? fast or well. <laughs> Playing great, and you've definitely got chops, but not sort of like when I first um, heard of you, actually through Bill. In fact, I, the first time I heard of you, I actually met you in a pub up in Bramhope in Leeds, but that's oh, right. a different story. With Bill Lawrence. Together. Yeah, with Bill Lawrence. Okay, cool, yeah. yeah. Um, but when I first heard you um, and saw you on, on the internet, there was a, a slew of other bass players who had like high C strings and were shredding and stuff like that. And I've always wondered if, obviously, you were in college just a, f a year or mm. so previous to that, whether that had been on your radar and you would thought, hmm, like maybe that is something I want to do or maybe you'd moved away from that and thought, I don't want to be that style of player. Like what did you, 
Can you remember that when all that was going on? Yeah, sure, yeah. I mean, I think when you're young, you know, you're just, you're so inspired and lit up by people who can play because you can't. (laughs) You know what I mean? When you're like 14 or 15, you're like, do, re, me. And then you watch, you know, a virtuosic musician play in front of you and you're like, oh my God. Um, so sure, I mean, when I was, especially when I was younger, I was watching people like that and super yeah. inspired by them. Um, I wasn't a 15-year-old going like, no, man, Jamerson's my guy. That's it. That was a thing that I came to later. Yeah. But maybe some of that was by necessity, just that I just never have been able to play fast. And was that through, do you think that choice was, was strengthened when you started playing the P-Bass? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, the the way I switched to P-Bass. I was playing, my first bass was a... Because you had a Ken Smith, didn't you? Was it Ken Smith four string? Yes. Because Mike came don't to really... Leeds a long time ago, <laughs> a long time ago, This a guy came to Leeds called Mike League. And my friends, like Bill, this was the first time you came over. I didn't meet you the first time you came over. And they're like, oh, this guy's come over from North Texas. Why? Do you know what I mean? Like jazz school. Yeah, great. And I was like, oh, wicked. And they were like, yeah, he's playing Ken Smith. That, that, back in the day, that meant you were good. You just had to play Ken Smith. <laughs> he must be good. He's playing a Ken Smith. I was like, wow, this kid must be cooking. And then they were like, and he knows every standard. He knows every standard. <laughs> well, that, just, that was my reputation. Yeah. It was propaganda. It was none, propaganda. Of, none of that is true. I couldn't play and I didn't know any standards. <laughs> but see, that's what Chinese whispers. But anyway, but then you obviously found the P-Base. So what's the story about finding the P-Base? My first base was the Squire, which yeah. was not mine. It was my high school's. Right, okay, yeah. Then when I finally bought a base, it was like a Warwick bolt-on fretless base. Yeah. Then I got a Ken Smith four-string, which maybe is the only four-string Ken Smith in the world. Because <laughs> whenever <laughs> yeah. you see a Ken Smith, it's always five-string, yeah, six-string, six you know? String, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I played that bass through college. And my band, Snarky Puppy, was opening for an incredible band called Rudder. Oh, Tim LaFave. Tim yeah, LaFave, yeah, yeah, yeah. Henry Hay, Keith Carlock, Chris yeah. Cheek. Back in the day. They had a great website, actually. I don't know if you checked yeah, it out. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. crazy. They're, I mean, they like were my cartoon f- 70s things. Yeah. favorite band for a long time. And we opened for them in Dallas. When they came through town, we did a little tour with them. And just before the gig, my, the battery on my Ken Smith died because it was active. Yeah. And it was like five minutes before the gig. There were no nine volts in the house. And Tim said, you can play my P-Bass if you want. And I, you know, I mean, my Ken Smith, the action was like kissing, <laughs> you know, frets. I mean, the yeah, strings yeah, were yeah, kissing yeah. the frets. Yeah. And he gave me this P-Bass where, the, I mean, you could put like a baseball bat in between the, you know. <laughs> like a drained Olympic swimming pool. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was, it was huge. Yeah. And I was like, man, I don't know if I can play this, but I don't have another option. So we started playing the gig and I, uh. I was trying to play the stuff that I normally played on the Smith and I couldn't. So I ended up just playing like the basic bare essentials of how you could possibly get through those songs. And at the end of the gig, everyone in my band was like, man, sounded awesome tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, no, but I only played 10% of the shit that, oh, right, okay. (laughs) So the, yeah, like a couple weeks later, I, we were on tour in South Carolina. And I found the 76 P bass that was in terrible shape in like a drum shop. Yeah. Actually. Was that the one with the maple board? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You still maple, got that bass? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, natural, natural finish, black pickguard. And yeah. uh, 
I paid $700 for it because nice. it was like in terrible shape. Yeah. And I never, yeah, put flat ones on. I just basically tried to make my bass like Tim's. And Tim is probably my favorite bass player. Well, so you went with a huge action in the full. Yeah, just, just did like, the, this is the way it is. Because it makes you play like a drummer. Yeah. When you have a bass like that. If you have the Ken Smith thing with the low action, you, and that's, I mean, I'm not saying a Ken Smith, I'm saying the thing like I had with my Ken Smith. Yeah. You know, obviously you can play great on any bass, and Ken Smiths are beautiful basses, but uh, if you have that low action, thin string thing, the temptation is to play like a guitar player. Yeah, yeah, Because if you play dum, 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 low on it, it just doesn't have the same... It doesn't have the same timbre. Same yeah. bounce and, and thing as, as, a, as an old P bass. So, and yeah. that was it? So you were a P bass sort of like nerd ever since, yeah? Yeah, but I mean, I play lots of different basses. You know, I have a lot of... I have, a, you know, Hofner and I have, a, you know, some bases by like F-Bass and, yeah, you know, yeah. Oliva Coppola and some really great new makers, you know, one from the Czech Republic, you know, one from Italy. I mean, loads of, you know, yeah. each bass has its own thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the way that I hear the instrument... But if you on a desert island... <laughs> 59 P-Bass. Yeah, yeah, and 59 I'm, And I'm done, yeah. yeah. And that was with Snarky Puppy, just to be clear. That was that when you were mm. when you were supporting Rudder, yeah. it was with mm. Snarky Puppy. Yeah. What was it like? My one of the guys that works for the team, he said, was it a dare Snarky starting Snarky Puppy with that amount of people? <laughs> he said, you know, I mean, like nobody people are like, you know, economically <laughs> this might be tough. You know, how come it sort of like ended up with so many so many musicians right off the uh, right off the mark? I think because the bands I was listening to at that time were larger ensembles, Bigger like bands, yeah. Avishai Cohen's uh, International Vamp Band yeah, with like maybe, Antonio yeah, Sanchez yeah, and yeah. Uh, the, um, you know Parliament. You know, I mean, there's these like armies of musicians yeah, on Hunters stage. Was a bigger band as well. You know, yeah, like, totally. Band, yeah. So I I was really into this idea of kind of textures. Yeah. You know, and having a lot of power, and 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 I was in a jazz school, and everyone was playing in trios and quartets and quintets, and and I loved doing that. But the sound wasn't the sound that I grew up with. I grew up with electric guitars and horn sections and yeah. loads of percussion and like the music I listened to as a child. You know, I was a pop kid in a jazz school. Yeah, That's yeah. not to say that I didn't work hard to be a jazz guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, to I did. The, the I learned sound, yeah. the tunes, and I learned the vocabulary, you know, the best I could and, and uh, played jazz all day. Yeah. But when it came to my band, I was trying to do that. And when different. you put together Snarky Puppy, was there, did you have tunes pre-written? Were you like, yeah. were you always like, this is gonna be my band, I'm gonna start this band, I've got some tunes pre-written? It started more like a workshop for songs that I was writing. So I would invite everyone over to my house, you know, on a Sunday and I'd like kind of cook them really crappy food and, and we'd spend three hours playing through something that I had written, like reading it and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And then we did like a gig, because that's what you just did. If you had seven tunes, like, ah, let's just play in this basement of this pizza place. Yeah, yeah. And we did that. And the nice thing is with 10 people in the band, if everyone invites three people, you got a full house, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like a basement. So we did the first gig and people dug it and we were like, oh, let's do another one, let's do another one, let's do another one. And then, yeah. And then suddenly Snacky Puppy was a thing. And then when did it, like my, perception of it might be different but when you kind of like globally got recognition and I'm talking like before the Grammys and stuff like that but by globally I mean like by all the sort of like muso geeks out there it's when you started dropping uh, YouTube videos that's right of yeah. that thing like where did that concept come from it came from a conversation that kept happening at shows where we had 
released three albums um, and people kept coming up to us and telling us like, uh, yeah, your records are cool, but the live show is like a lot, it's a lot cooler. You should do a live record. And I, and I was like, I hate how live records sound. You know, I think it's a fun idea, you know. And I think one night, Spot, uh, our drummer then and, and a person in the audience, we were having a conversation. I made a joke like, the only way I'll make a live record is if it's in a studio, you know. And then we kind of talked about it. We're like, yeah. we could do that, right? I mean, we could just invite an audience and make the record the way we always make it live and let the audience check it out. That might be interesting. But it won't be as, in, you know, then it'll sound great, but it'll have live energy. And then we thought, well, but people won't get it if they don't see it, so let's film it. Yeah. You know, so we took a big risk and made this record called Tell Your Friends in 2010 yeah. in a studio in Louisiana called Dockside. Yeah, and that was like, that was the first moment where the music started reaching people outside of our circle of friends. Was family. that when and, the, everybody had the, yeah. had the cans on in the actual room? Yeah, and that was, yeah. And those were just our friends that we invited. We couldn't charge money because no one cared about us. I mean, you know, I mean, it was our yeah. seventh year as a band, but no one cared. No one had heard of us. So we just invited friends from around the country to drive down and we cooked them food and they sat and... And then after that, it was, is that when you did it Matt, Matt's place? Was it Shapeshifter Lab? That's right. Lab. Was that the album the one after that? after Tell Your Friends was that, yeah. Yeah. And that was, was that, because that ground, for me, ground that's up, when yeah. I was like, whoa, you know, they're getting like a lot of people checking out what they're doing now. The video was amazing. It looked like if nobody's seen it, like check it out online. We'll drop in some sort of like pictures of it now so you can check it out. But it's like... Shapeshifter Labs in, it's in Brooklyn, right? So, yeah. and it's a huge space and you had like a full, you know, audience in among the bands. Mm. Like, logistically, was it hard to put that together? Yeah. yeah and and, and, a, who, and who's that, whose shoulders that on? Yours? Then it was on mine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, with a lot of help. Yeah. You know, but I was the one that was doing the logistics and, and loads of help, asked loads of favors from loads of people. And, you know, it's not like I was doing it by myself, but... At that time, we didn't have a manager. Yeah. It, was on, it was on me, yeah. And actually, full circle, that record that we made called Ground Up in that space in Shapeshifter Lab, yeah. my recording studio in New York has now moved into Shapeshifter Lab. So Matt... Oh, are you in there anyway now? Matt yeah. Garrison and I just partnered last month. So now we're like, yeah, recording during the day and doing gigs at night and in that space. It's very cool. It's an amazing space. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, Matt, really cool. cool. Place. Matt's a great guy. Um, yeah, and what, after that, is that where you felt like a real shift in terms of where Snarky Puppy were going as a band? Because um, you were still like gigging like all the time. You've always gigged. Like, yeah. Really, like, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, I think now we're like maybe at, we started in 2003, right? So... I think now we're close to 2,000 gigs. Definitely between like 1,600 and 2,000 shows. I mean, it's a lot. But I mean, we say shows. I mean, a lot of those shows were like my friend's house party. Yeah. Or yeah. some crappy bar Have that nobody wanted to see. Consistently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a reason why you've done that? Yeah, I mean, there's Was loads. Was it like growth of the band? Was it from sort of like sure. an entrepreneurial thing? Like, I want to grow the band. We've got to keep gigging. We should be out there doing it. Well, people ask a lot, you know, uh, you know, like, what was the moment when you realized that the band was going to be, like, what was the moment where you felt like you were on the right? It's like millions of little yeah, moments, yeah, yeah. you know? Like, obviously, winning a Grammy does something. Yeah. Obviously, making a record that goes on the internet that people watch does something, you know? But really, the whole thing has just been kind of like, you know, and just trying to avoid it going like that <laughs> yeah. is the key, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and there have been long periods of plateaus, 
you know, I mean, yeah. for sure. But uh, I think it's important to keep steady pressure with anything. I'm doing the same thing with my other band, Bocante, now. Yeah, it's like yeah. sometimes we don't play for three or four months, but it's like the steady pressure of at least releasing a video or releasing a new song or something to keep yourself not just in front of people's eyes because that's important too, but just to keep your vibe as a unit yeah. interpersonally as the members of the band to keep that growing because every night you grow something yeah, yeah. even if you feel like you have a bad night that's actually growth yeah yeah you know, absolutely yeah you absolutely. know there are a lot of things about last night that i was like oh i don't i really don't like that and i could sense that everyone felt it on stage that means that if we all feel it we're growing a communal sense of what is right yeah. and what is wrong for this band you know so for, like for like talk let's talk about you for a minute just in terms of like entrepreneurial kind of skills because you've obviously got them you've got this like amazing band that you've been the driving force within I would say from an outsider's point of view anyway and then you've got the label ground up and then you've got festival and do you know what I mean you've got a new band like from, on a personal like side like how are you dealing with the workload like have you got a big team or yeah totally so you just like work your ass off or is it like both? <laughs> I know. I mean, it's really that it's really about the team. Yeah. You know. I mean, at a certain moment, we got a booking agent. You know, after I had been doing it for a while, at a certain moment, we got a manager. At a certain moment, you know, we started this label, and it was just me and one person doing the label. And then we got another person. And then we got another person. And you know, I I really feel like it's very important that no matter what you do, that you have an infrastructure there to support it. You know, if you want to build a restaurant and you build a restaurant with six seats, you're never going to be able to have seven people eating at one yeah. time, right? Yeah. So you're really limiting the growth of the restaurant. Yeah. You know, and I think of it the same way. Like I always choose to, you know, spend the money before we can afford to spend the money, if that makes any sense, yeah, yeah, to create yeah. an infrastructure that facilitates growth. Like, so you were like hiring ahead of time? Always. Always. Always yeah. hiring ahead of time. We hired a tour manager before we should have we hired a sound engineer before we should have. We hired our, our stage crew before we should have. Like a, normally about a year to two years before we could really afford it. Yeah. You know, it was like, all right, I'm going to do extra clinics this year to afford this, or I'm going to rock this credit card yeah. to afford this, or you know. And are these full-time team members, or yeah, they, yeah? So you're like, we need to hire ahead of time. We're going to get this, and then yeah. and then for you, have you got like a clear? kind of like a clear goal for them to f like for those for those guys to fill a clear role should I say or is it you kind of know what they, they're going to do you you hire them and then you kind of figure it out on the journey I only ask that because I'm I go through the same kind of thing sometimes sure like, I've got a role to fill and I do sometimes like feel like I'm I'm doing both sometimes I'll hire somebody I'm like All right, I need to figure out exactly how to work this and then sometimes I'll just have a really clear role that I hire for I I think that most things that you hire someone for already have a clear role. Tour manager, sound engineer, yeah. stage crew. But within that role, there's a lot of room for variation, you know? So I try to hire people always who are creative, who are personable, you know? Because for me, that's, that's actually like one of the, I mean, I've gotten into lots of like little scrap, not scraps, but like conversations with people who I work for where it's like, to me, the result is important, but if we get the result, if we get the thing that we want at the expense of someone hating us, 
or being pissed off at the way that they were treated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care. I would rather not get the result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because at the end of the day, this, this industry is a human industry. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if we would have met in that bar with Bill and I would have been a total, you know, yeah, yeah. If you were to you, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. then it's yeah. like, you're not going to invite me here today. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm not going to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you for people who might be interested in it. And it's like, sometimes, you know, just in general, as people, we're focused on getting the thing. But I think the way in which we get the thing sometimes is more important. So that's a huge, huge factor in everyone that that I hire. It's we like, are they a nice person? Yeah. Are they a good person? Do they treat people well? You know, uh, and, and are they creative? Yeah. Because generally, you know, the desired effect is that you hire someone to do one job, but actually they end up doing things that you would have never imagined that, you, that you they do. Yeah. That's innovation, you know. I mean, that's what you want from a musician too. When you hire a drummer, you don't want someone to play exactly the Paying way. By numbers, you want somebody to like bring some personality to what they're doing and to challenge you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I love when our tour manager or when our sound engineer comes up to me and says, "Like, I know you want this, but what about this?" And I'm like, "Man, yeah, great. Yeah, perfect." Out, out yeah. of all of the things that you've got going on, what what's personally challenged you the most? Is there anything that sticks out and you're just like, "Shit, that was a really hard time." It could be, for instance, I was watching a, uh, there's a Netflix documentary called Fire. It's about a, have you seen it, right? It's about, <laughs> right, it's about a music festival that went on in the Bahamas. It was, yeah. it was I, a, I love it. I love an it. example of the best marketing <laughs> ever and the worst fulfillment ever, right? And, and I was watching this and I was, I was thinking about you and I was thinking, who oh God. Who, well, not, not in that way. I was thinking, who do I know that's putting a music festival? Oh, Mike, and he's coming in a few days. I'll ask him if he's seen this documentary. Like, um, like, what was it like to? Was that hard? Was that just like personally challenging? Because holy crap, it scared the hell out of me. I was terrified. I was terrified until the moment that the first band played. I mean, the morning of, I was talking to the festival director, like, "Is this gonna? Is this gonna? Ha- are we gonna be able to? Do yeah. we need to cancel? Do you I know? need to be going?" And he's sick? like, "Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, do I need to catch the flu suddenly?" <laughs> yeah. He was like, "Just relax. Everything's cool. It's gonna be fine, you know." Yeah. And then it started, and you know, but because the team. Because yeah. the festival director, you know, Paul Lair and, and the producers, you know, Rosanna Friedman and TJ Ebenezer, who are also our tour managers, yeah. they really, you know, they set it up. They did it. They did. Yeah. I do the fun stuff. I pick the artists. I schedule it. You know, I'm like, oh, this masterclass could be cool. You know, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, for me, it's all fun. For yeah. them, it's like the They're nasty. Project managing, yeah, it's yeah. the nasty stuff. How are we going to deal with these like, yeah. thousands of people? <laughs> yeah. But I, but the. I mean, the plus side of having people in your team, which we've built very slowly over 16 years, you know, the plus side is that, is that I can kind of be creative, I can do those kinds of things, and other people can kind of make it happen. Yeah. The, the downside of having people working for you is that they're, you no longer have the direct communication with people. And when there's a problem it gets kind of obscured. You don't know exactly what it is. Yeah, and, and, and you asked about the, the biggest struggle that I have, and it's, it's like, it's human relationships. You know, that if someone on my team doesn't do a thing they're supposed to do for one of our artists on our label, or one of the artists on the festival, you know, that that artist gets upset. Yeah. And they get upset at me. I was gonna say, it's not the, it's not you know the what I mean? guy, is it? It's at you, isn't it? And it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At me. Yeah. Because I hired the person who made the mistake. Yeah, yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, that's the that's the ladder. And I really struggle with that. 
a lot because a lot of the time it's not so clear. The person doesn't come to me and say, hey, this thing happened and I can't say blah, 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 blah. It's like they assume something, they don't tell me, people don't want to upset me so they don't tell me that there ever was a problem. Yeah. I don't know about it, but someone is <laughs> hating me. You know, I mean, that's, that's yeah, like yeah. Really, a, that's really a thing yeah. in any kind of business structure. And I think maybe if, if you're the CEO of Starbucks, you probably don't care. Yeah, because it's you're, so far down that you don't really hear about it. But in small organizations, for sure. And is. also because the thing that we're doing is, you know, we're not selling m- mediocre coffee. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we're every single person that works in my circle is is a person who really cares about art and really cares about people. Yeah. And when someone gets hurt or something gets screwed up, it's very personal. Yeah. It's not about selling yeah. beans that. You know, if you're an art artisan coffee maker, it's the same. Yeah, but yeah, if you're Starbucks, yeah, yeah. it's like it's, it's you know, not the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So that's that's a really big struggle. I mean, for me, the person obviously doing a lot of things. It's I don't live a normal life in terms of my personal life, but it doesn't really bother me. You know, I don't go to bed at night going like, oh, I wish I was married with five children and working at the post office. And you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I enjoy my that unconventional. Makes- situation yeah 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 it's yeah. unconventional <laughs> I mean, not to you <laughs> I mean not to me because I grew up in a military family and we were moving every oh, is it because three or four years yeah, and the yeah so for me it was great preparation for a life on tour yeah yeah you know there's nothing normal yeah for me really so it's yeah, cool yeah. absolutely before I let you go because Mike's got a gig tonight so he has to go I want you to talk about bases and gear because all the bass nerds out there will kick my ass if I didn't talk about amps and basses. Obviously, we've talked about basses, right? So, P basses. Do you want to hold this P bass? If I get through this interview and you've not held a bass, Mike, they'll kill me. <laughs> you've got all these basses behind you didn't, and you didn't hold one. <laughs> what are you playing at, Divine? <laughs> so, so in terms of P basses, this is actually... You've got the Mulan, haven't you? I do have a, I have a beautiful Mulan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of, like, when you play it, have you got flats on it? I do, yeah. Yeah. Tone all the way up, all the way off? I normally... The way I approach the tone knob during the gig is kind of like an organ player, actually. Oh, so you're constantly riding? I'm constantly changing it. I mean, sometimes with respect to the sound of the venue, you know, with the moment in the music, with the phrase I'm trying to play. I mean, I feel like music is generally... You're just reacting all the time. There's no... Like, I put the tone at 20 and, you know... It's like you should be listening and be in the sound and self-producing. Yeah. Are there any disadvantages that you found with the P-Bass? Like, whatever it may be. So, no. for instance, the, when I heard you using a POG, do you know, when you, to give you the... Mm-hmm. And I thought that's interesting because sometimes when it comes to like more of a soloistic type, type thing on the P-Bass, because of the tonality of the P-Bass, it's sometimes hard, or for me anyway, just to get it, you know, to get above the mix sometimes, especially with flat wounds on, is giving me the whatever divine, yeah, you lose. No, 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 <laughs> but no. Yeah, did that, I'm thinking, that, that's my thinking face. Was that hog born out of that? Were you like, what can I do to get it? I mean, that's just probably because I was a guitar player first, and I mean, if you play like a phrase, like if we're in E, and you play, uh, you know, it has a yeah. really different feeling from yeah, yeah, yeah. this note, especially. Yeah. You know, with two octaves in between, it has a much different feeling than this note. <laughs> yeah. But it's the same note, yeah. right? It's just yeah. in a different octave. So 
for me, a note has a different personality depending on what octave it's in, and definitely a different relationship with the, with the fundamental, yeah. with the root. So, uh, so the pog was an opportunity for me to, to, to put more color in the yeah. note choices, yeah. you know, which you can't do down here on the neck because it yeah, just so sounds... Yeah, you weren't just... Yeah, I mean... basically like pinned to there being able to try and get it. You could play down here. And I could play down range. here and still have a lot of color in the... In the in the note choices, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, in terms of like when I listen to you play, you just like your pocket is really, really awesome. Like I'm, I'm glad just you like, feel that oh way. <laughs> Jesus! I'm like, give me a break. It's too good. Oh. Like in terms of like working on your groove, have you ever done anything like that sure. knowingly and thought I'm yeah. going to work on this specific exercise? Sure. What kind of stuff have you done? I mean, a basic control exercise like that. I mean, I do this on any instrument that I'm learning, like you know technique level zero you know basically yeah. like a drone like focusing i mean in general when you're practicing it's nice to focus on one thing yeah right because the focus more in on one, yeah. and just really go way in there so right hand open string we're going to forget about the left hand and like just doing something like uh alternating one two yeah. I, I've warmed up like this for 16 years playing yeah. bass, but uh, changing accents and changing speed. So maybe yeah. at a moderate speed, like, uh, and changing the accents. Yeah. So like fours, one, actually eights, I guess. Yeah. Or fours. Just making sure or, the actual placement's bang on. Yeah. Right, or threes. Fives. Yeah. Or groupings, like two, two, three, like. Yeah. Which would be seven, or yeah. two, 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 three, which would be nine, right? Yeah. You know, and just doing things like that, like you're totally taking your left hand out of the thing and you're focusing on on accenting yeah and and changing accents with each finger right if you do any any of those drills where the total number is odd you're going to be starting with a different finger a different you're going to be flipping everything yeah, be flipping, yeah. so one two one two one two one two three one two one two one two one two three yeah. right and making sure that you've got complete control complete control yeah. with a metronome yeah. You know, always with a metronome, you know. And there's a million things you can do to practice with a metronome without an instrument. Yeah, because you've got it, like, you know? locked in. Something to lock into. Yeah. So to tell you you're locked in or not, right? Totally, totally. Yeah. And and just really letting the music in your mind guide your hands and not the other way around. Because it's, yeah, yeah. it's such a tactile thing. We can really play stuff without knowing what we're playing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I can just play... Yeah, like a pattern. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I don't hear any of those notes. Yeah. But you can tell that I don't hear any of those notes. Yeah, yeah. Right. So before you do anything when you're practicing, just thinking about how will this sound, hear it in your head, and then try to pull the sound out with yeah. your fingers. You know. So I mean, I think exercises like that are really, really good, and I still warm up like that. Yeah. You know, put the metronome to where it. Uh, there's a great free app called Tempo that I use, and you can speed up 
the metronome every eight bars or every 20 seconds. Well, it just clicks on, yeah. Yeah, by however many BPM that you want. And it's great, you know, for just right. spending 20 minutes just doom, 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 doom. And after 20 minutes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, stuff like that. Because yeah. it's actually really, it's more complex than you think. Like when I'm doing it, and when I'm always like, when somebody's playing two notes, like, like just like the consecutive same note, I'm always like, listen to the placement. Like, is it even? Mm. Or is it slightly right. off? You know, when you listen to a great drummer play it, Right, it's not And it's metronomic. right in the pocket. Yeah. It's, it's right in the pocket, you know? Like, can we do that with our, with our fingers? Well, I think the thing about, what I was talking about is time. Yeah. When I'm talking about doing these exercises, I'm talking about time, about locking in, with, locking in with the metronome and really having a clear sense of how to play in time. Yeah. Groove and feel is a completely different thing. Yeah. People can have groove and feel without having good time. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Many yeah. people have good time yeah. and, don't and don't have, have groove, groove or feel. feel. You know, these things are, are very different. Um, so why do you think that is? Because one is spiritual and one is technical. And do you think you can work on groove? Do you think it's something that you can... Completely. But I think that you're very disadvantaged if you don't have access to musicians who play with groove and feel. Yeah. I went through college four years, did my thing, learned a bunch about theory and harmony and complex warm-up exercises and things like this. But, you know, I really didn't have any feel. Yeah. It's, you know? it's actually playing with the, those guys that's given you feel. It's like totally. And I mean, I really got up in there, like in a scene. I was fortunate enough to be living near Dallas where all the Roy Hargrove, RH Factor guys, all the Marcus Miller guys, all the Erica Badu guys, all the Kirk Franklin, Fred Hammond guys, you know, they were all living there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I found those places yeah. where those things were happening. I was playing in churches, like 80% of my gigs were in churches for four years in Dallas, you know, and like, you really understand quickly <laughs> how bad your feel is you yeah, know what yeah, I mean yeah, yeah. you know and and so for me that was I was fortunate not everyone has that yeah. opportunity but we all have records yeah absolutely yeah and now with the internet we all have YouTube and we can watch these people play yeah you know what I mean and and you really have to take the initiative as an individual to try to learn how to play exactly like that yeah don't just learn the notes don't just buy the bass, you know, but to yeah, really yeah. get all of the subtleties that your heroes have. And if you learn enough of those things from enough people, it's kind of like a passageway to your own sound. Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't want to, I don't want to learn too much of James Jamerson because I don't want to sound like a clone. Of course you don't want to sound like a clone. Yeah. You're, you're never, ne never like going to sound yeah, like yeah, James yeah, yeah, Jamerson, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's important that if you, for me, it was like I got into Jocko, and then I got into Jamerson, yeah. you know, and then I got into Dave Holland. From all, uh, yeah, yeah, you're taking totally. elements from all these players. Yeah, and you become an amalgamation of all your influences. Yeah, all we are, I mean, you can't do anything new. No one can do anything new. All we can do is take, you know, take the stuff from our record collection yeah. and put it through our filter with the way that we feel inside and express it, yeah, yeah. you know. So, I mean, how do you get groove? How do you get feel? If you have, if there are musicians in your town that you really feel that they have this thing strongly, go to every gig, yeah. carry their amp. You know what I mean? Get involved. Set yeah. up, set yeah, up, yeah, tell yeah, them, yeah. I'm happy to set up your stuff. 
you know, blah, 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 blah. I was doing that with a keyboard player. You know, I was setting up, driving him to his gigs. Yeah, Bernard yeah, yeah. Wright, you know, like yeah. one of the greatest musicians I've ever met. I was driving him to his gigs, setting up his gear for like three years, you know, and we were yeah. playing at church together. And it was, uh, you know, it was funny because I didn't feel like I had anything to offer musically until I had spent three years doing that. Yeah, yeah. And then I started to feel like, I feel like myself now when I play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't feel like I'm trying to please my jazz professor or impress my rock friend or, you know. Yeah. I think it's. I think that's that's huge. But you. But to have both, time yeah. and feel. That's. Yeah. I think we should just leave it there, Mike. Let's leave it I've there. Done it, like it's so good. So good. I don't think George was super I know George interested is like really in what I had to say. This Mike guy sucks. <laughs> Bring somebody else along. This like, is probably what everyone watching looks yeah. like right now. They're just, they're just really just well, done. Like, they're, let's get him. Uh, they're, they're, shot of him. they're done. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for coming along, mate. You've been an absolute star. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you, pleasure as always. Man.